0: What if we look at academics and we look at behavior that's not originating inside of classrooms? What if we change and flip the script? The schools aren't inside of communities so the communities can send their kids to be validated or approved for going on to college. What if schools became places centered in the community where they're meeting the needs of the community itself?
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by...
2: What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is my 18th year in the classroom, and this, of course, is All the Above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We want to welcome anybody who is joining us, either watching us or listening to the podcast for the very first time. Welcome to the All of the Above family. We hope you appreciate what you hear and what you learn. And um, uh, as always, you know, you can hit up AOTAShow.com for all the previous episodes with so, so many super dope guests. And here we are in episode 82 or something like that. That's a lot of guests. That's a lot of really dope people in education. So definitely go through, dig through the crates and um, be part of those those conversations that we've had because all those issues are are ongoing, Jeff. They are ongoing. Jeff, how are you doing? It's November, mid-November. Third, uh, Thanksgiving's coming up and um, booster shots are out there. All that stuff. Are, are you boosted up yet, Jeff?
1: Oh, I am I am so boosted, man. Well, <laughs> I uh, I got my third shot back in October, okay? Early October. I Ooh, was like that. F- first in line, man. As soon as they expanded it from, uh, I think initially it was just like, you know, very ill people and very elderly people kind of a, a situation. And as soon as they opened it up to, uh, you know, the the audience of people who work in schools, I was like... Where do I sign up? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, I am uh, three shots strong. Uh, left arm feeling like a million bucks. Okay,
2: <laughs> three shots strong. That's that's that could go on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or something. That's all right. Three shots strong. I like that.
1: Yeah, and uh, and you know what, Manuel, um, this this is you know <laughs> funny and not funny, but um, I guess I would just say in the words of of one of our great athletes, Manuel. I have been
2: immunized. (laughs) Uh, Yes. One of our great athletes. Oh man, I used to look up to him, man. I used to think he was so dope, but now I'm like, whoa, he's one of those. He's one of those. Let's not get into it here though, Jeff, man. It's the world of education. Lots Lots of stuff happening, lots of stuff to discuss, lots of conversations to be had, Jeff. So what's on today's agenda? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody and uh, super
1: excited for today because we have a great guest coming on with us. And we always have a great guest. Let's be real. Only the dopest guests come here on All the Above. But um, today we have uh, coming on the show Michael Essien, who is a principal up in San Francisco. And we're going to be digging into some really fascinating conversation, both about uh, just the kind of insanity of being a school leader right now right in this uh, post pandemic but still in the in the pandemic world um, so we're gonna kind of dig into some of that and michaels is very much known for uh, his innovative leadership work uh, in San Francisco around um, a whole school approach and a community school based approach that uh, I think really, brings to life a lot of the things that we like to talk about in our field around, you know, reimagining school and transforming education and innovating and that kind of thing. Uh, well, he's been, you know, working at this and and leading a school site, attempting to do these things for a number of years and going to share with us some of his kind of learnings and wisdom um, and some, you know, some really powerful reflections about Uh, our education system more generally. So uh, it's going to be a great conversation, folks. Uh, Lots of wisdom and dopeness in the building. As usual, you definitely don't want to miss it.
2: Yeah, sounds great. Can't wait for that. But up first, folks, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a Look at some news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today?
1: Well, Manuel, today uh, we're going to see who's in the building. We got a roll call. Take some, uh, take some attendance.
2: All right. Taking some attendance. Let's do it. Let's do it. Who we got first? First up, Manuel, is Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning. Well, this is not a sports podcast, Jeff, as I said in the intro. And um, at least Peyton Manning, however hasn't disappointed me as far as I know by talking about woke mob, this and that, whatever, like some other <laughs> quarterback um, who shall uh, not be named here. So yeah, uh-uh. I don't know. Is this a a story about a, a athlete who is, I don't know, doing some great work in education? What, what we got going on here, Jeff? Uh, this,
1: this is not a story about an athlete who's doing great work in education. Uh, you know, I will say Peyton Manning is doing great work on that uh, that that like parallel Monday night football. Broadcast. yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I, I appreciate that. So sh- shout out to Peyton and Eli uh, for for doing that. Um, I'm sure they're not watching all the above ever. Uh, probably not probably not. <laughs> but but nonetheless, this story though, Manuel does hearken to Peyton Manning's most, Famous word. Okay, so anyone who has ever watched a game that Peyton Manning, his quarterback, knows that there's one word that gets said more than any other word, (laughs) which is the great city. Of Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Manuel. Omaha. Yeah, it's it's really. I don't know if I have the the pitch, you know, the right pitch to do it, but it's like a it's an urgent scream, like Omaha, you know. It's uh,
2: it's up there, right? Like you apologies can, you can, uh, to those who are listening <laughs> on the go. I don't know what that sounded like coming through your earbuds it's, or your car speakers.
1: I, it, yeah, thank you. It is. It's the pitch <laughs> that comes to your voice, man. Well, when there's a two hundred and eighty pound man made of complete muscle who runs faster than anyone you've ever met who is trying to kill you (laughs) with his body, okay? Uh that's, that's the pitch that Omaha gets said with uh, by, by Peyton Manning. So, um, okay, well, let's let's try and make this all make sense uh, to, yeah, to our viewers are like, what and listeners. Are about? <laughs> like, did I tune in? Is there a different all the above that I'm listening to now? <laughs> um, okay, let's get into it. So uh, this story comes to us out of the Associated Press. And uh, public schools in Omaha, Nebraska are navigating staffing shortages in part by turning to bilingual high school students to interpret when families talk with teachers during report card conferences. Uh, Lisa Uterback, I hope I'm saying that correctly, the district's chief student and community services officer told the Omaha World Herald that the district has about 20 students contracted as interpreters. The students are paid $18 an hour to help with middle and elementary school conferences. Uderbach said the student interpreters are going through the same application process and training as non-student interpreters. The AP story details three high school seniors who are among the 20 students currently contracted as interpreters and notes that these students were already accustomed to being asked by community members to help translate. Now the district is of course paying them for their services. Man, well, uh, we know that kids have been serving as interpreters for parents, particularly if their family speaks a language that's maybe not like Spanish or you know uh, one of the one of the very common um, languages other than English spoken um, across the country. But frankly, even Spanish speakers, this has been happening um, forever uh, in the United States. Um, but this is really interesting, Manuel, getting kids paid to work as interpreters. So i um, curious to get your thoughts about this.
2: Yeah, well, you know, there's national headlines about work shortages, uh, 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 not enough folks to staff in schools and in different companies and, and all over the place there. You know, some people are tossing around the term the great um, wait, what is, what is that term that they're using? The great resignation or something like that. So, so, you know, there's shortages here and there across because the pandemic has affected people in a lot of different ways. And in this case, a shortage of school interpreters. I love that the district is being creative and paying students to help serve uh, in those roles to help address this shortage. I, I love that. I love the idea of creative solutions to ongoing challenges. Now, we've talked on the show about the substitute teacher shortage and how that impacts us. I never really considered or thought about the, I guess, the reality that there are shortages in other other spaces too, besides the, the teaching space when it comes to our school. So when it comes to these interpreters, yeah, why not pay the students? And I love that, you know, as you said, students have been doing this informally for their own families and communities for, for forever. So why not, actually compensate them and formalize it. Think about those students, you know, in this story, they talked about three seniors in particular who are, who are being paid to interpret for, for folks for the school district. And you know, that's something that they could put on their resumes. That's something they could put on their college applications and they could actually get compensated for doing something that they've been doing before. And Omaha, Nebraska, I don't know how many folks are familiar with the city of Omaha, the biggest city in Nebraska, but yeah, it's, Quite diverse school system. There's a lot of different languages that are spoken there. The article mentioned um, that there's a lot of lot of families from various parts of Southeast Asia, and there's a whole host of different languages that the school district is is trying to navigate. So why not pay the students, Jeff? I, I mean, this I think helps reinforce or helps like remind people of the fact that these communities that are so often and so often have been spoken about through a deficit lens about how how much folks struggle in the poverty and this and that whatever it 's like well actually there's a lot of wealth there there's a lot of value within the community and in this case, these young people who can navigate multiple languages um, because of their experiences growing up so yeah, why not tap into that wealth that value and compensate them for that so to me it's a it 's a win win jeff
1: yeah it's definitely a win win um, I hundred percent agree with that, and um, I love it also manuel, because you know certainly as a as a native english speaker um, you know, I, I don't know personally the experience of, you know, immigrating to a country, learning a new language, especially, you know, uh, you know, being like an adult and having to navigate a big, complex government agency in a different language. You know, I had like a very tiny experience as a, you know, uh, in a study abroad program in college that has given me a lot of empathy. Um, for that experience, but I can't, you know, I can't even imagine the complexity and the um, you know, emotional struggle of that experience as being the rest of your life, right? And so I have spoken, though, with plenty of people who uh, grew up playing that role, right? Who, as kids, were the translator for their parents. And, you know, sometimes those experiences are really challenging because it can present a kind of an awkward dynamic between the parent and the child, right? So where the parent is, you know, oftentimes, right, kids look to their parents as like an authority figure or a person who's gonna guide them, you know, through something that might make them nervous or might be uncomfortable or uncertain and they look to them for stability but it almost sort of flips some of that dynamic on its head, right, it kind of disempowers the adults and empowers the child, and and it can be, you know, frankly, disruptive to the kind of family dynamic in some ways, right, Um, and that can have all kinds of other ripple effects, right, that can interfere with relationships and, you know, and those sorts of things. So I think, you know, hey, look, if the reality is there aren't enough people in the system or in the area available, Uh, to like professionally serve as translators, then I love this idea, right? Um, And, you know, kids are often asked to do that work unpaid. And, I, you know, I'm not saying that that necessarily represented some great historic injustice or anything. But the idea that they can get paid for this is great because it is labor, man. (laughs) Like anyone who's been in a situation where translators are working, if you watch them work or listen to them work, like that is tough complex, active work. And uh, I think it's great that um, they are you know capitalizing on the talents of students and the skills of students. And honestly, I think it might help avoid some of the like weird dynamics that could be created with a parent translating for a child if we actually can bring translation to the table that is outside of that you know immediate uh, family unit. Um, And that is like sort of a neutral employed party in the equation. Right. So, uh, you know, not that this is going to solve all the world's problems or anything, but um, really interesting idea coming out of Omaha. Maybe other districts, you know, maybe have tried it. I don't know. This is the first I think I'm hearing of it, but uh, it definitely hit me as one of those stories, Manuel, that was like, oh, yeah, this is dope. We should (laughs) we should probably do more of this. Um, cause also kids need jobs and, you know, it's harder, uh, than yep. historically it has been for teenagers to find work. So, um, you know, love it. Props to, props to Omaha. Omaha! <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, something that I'm thinking about is just how historically students who are who speak multiple languages, how historically the school system has tried to beat that other language out of them. I mean, I'm thinking about the, the East LA blowouts that um, our previous guest, Rox- Roxana Duenas mentioned on our, on our episode, these these student walkouts uh, across Boyle Heights in East LA back in the late 60s. And, and one of the reasons for that was because students were, you know, during that time, teachers were, using corporal punishment for students who were speaking Spanish in class. That's one of the many issues there. So so we've perhaps in little ways, in certain ways, in different, different ways, in different areas have transitioned from trying to almost literally beat the second language out of the student to compensating them and seeing it as the value that it is, the linguistic capital that they have there. So that's, you know, that's really yeah. dope. And I'm sure there's complications here. I'm sure when it comes to like translating for like a IEP or something where there's, you know, various, various concerns around privacy and all that, I'm sure there's challenges there. But why not have students help with translation services for for matters that they they can handle? And maybe they're also nurturing a a new a new, I guess, wave of possible interpreters that they could hire. Maybe some of these students go off to go off to college or or don't in in any case. Maybe they come back as professional interpreters for the school system or for companies or for whoever. So why yeah. not, why not? Why not? Yeah. Well, Jeff, we have another, another name on a roll call, Jeff. Mm, okay, who's up? We have um, a hero, actually. Someone who is gonna take pollution down to zero. Um, that oh. is, of course, <laughs> of course, yes, Captain Planet. <laughs> oh, man, I used to
1: watch that show all the time, Manuel, <laughs> all the time. I love that show. I know the song. I don't think you want to hear me sing it right now, but uh, um, I, I, rec- I, I recognize those lyrics. <laughs> and uh, I remember, you know, Earth. Fire, wind, water, heart, Uh, (laughs) go planet. Yes, uh, that was such a completely corny and absolutely wonderful television show, (laughs) Manuel. And it's probably like, if I went back and watched it now, it's like probably super problematic. It's probably all racist and sexist like all the old TV was.
2: But as a kid at the time when I didn't know any better, I loved it. I loved it too. And, you know, I don't... Well, let me say, I've been doing some research, some research on my own, and Jeff. I think it could be you know scientifically proven that as soon as we stopped having new episodes of Captain Planet, the climate crisis really ramped up these wildfires, <laughs> global warming, all that stuff you know i don't done some research, Jeff. I think there's a correlation between the end of the run of Captain Planet the cartoon and the uh climate crisis becoming, what has become, Jeff? I don't know, I just think somebody should look into that. But um, in any case, this story, this story has to do with the environment, Jeff, and the climate crisis. And uh, this story comes to us by way of the United Nations, actually. Uh, So in a recent report, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, more commonly known as UNESCO, recently warned that education systems across the globe are not currently addressing the gravity of the climate crisis. New UNESCO data from 100 countries shows that only 53% of the world's national education curricula make any reference to climate change. And when the subject is mentioned, it is almost always given very low priority. Fewer than 40% of teachers surveyed by UNESCO and Education International were confident in teaching about the severity of climate change, and only about one-third felt able to explain the effects of climate change on their region or locality. When asked about the challenges of teaching about climate change, 30% of the 58,000 teachers surveyed reported that they were not familiar with suitable pedagogies. Ahead of the first joint meeting of the Environment and Education Ministers at uh, COP26 in Glasgow um, in early November, um, UNESCO decided to organize the event together for tomorrow, education and climate action. And this particular uh, part of the climate conference was the first joint meeting of environment and education ministers. And at that particular meeting, UNESCO underscored the need for collaboration between education and environment sectors to successfully integrate climate change in education systems worldwide in every level of schooling. So Jeff, The kids aren't learning anything. There's no Captain Planet anymore, and nobody's teaching them about the climate crisis. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, um, I think it is both uh, strangely comforting to to read this article in the sense, Manuel, that uh, I'm like, oh, well, at least we're not alone, right? Like, at least we're not the only ones doing a terrible job at this. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's some globe. comfort there, I guess. There's a, there's a strange, if depressing, set of uh, comforting feelings that comes from that. And it is outrageous from the standpoint of this is literally, Manuel, and I feel like this is just objective fact. This is literally the biggest crisis we face as a species on the planet, like we are making the planet, which is the only planet we have for everything that is life that we know it, potentially uninhabitable or certainly much more hostile to to our ability to live on it. Um, and we're doing so willfully, by choice, uh, to make a small set of people and corporations continually richer and richer. So, uh, you know, it is, it's is—it's wild that this is not, uh, you know, officially in the curriculum, literally everywhere, okay? I mean, everywhere. There's not any country on Earth that has been spared from the effects of climate change. Um, We are seeing them in uh, both subtle and catastrophic ways, literally everywhere, right? Giant fires in Australia that wiped out, you know, almost the entire natural habitat for koalas we have flooding and you know and then massive drought and famine in parts of africa and parts of um china we have fires here in california we have hurricanes and you know and typhoons of uh, you know hundred year storms happening every year right so even in just the sheer like what's happening in life and shouldn't we be talking about current events in school in some form or another uh, it's shocking to me that we wouldn't find that climate change is not only a formal part of the curriculum, literally everywhere, but also in a rapidly expanding part of the curriculum because it should even be expanding out of just like your unit in earth science that's on climate and weather. Right. Sh- this should should be talked about in social studies, in history, in geography, in, you know, um, World language classes in, you know, current events or news kinds of electives in art classes where we, you know, are uh, commenting on the world around us and, and interpreting other people's pieces about the world around us. Like this should be talked about in lots and lots of disciplines as well, Manuel. So. Um, so this is crazy, and also just to just to give a little shout out too. I'm sure some people saw these videos online, but um, but you know the the cop the um, I forget what that stands for. It's like Co- Committee of Parties or something like that. Um, all the big rich countries in the world get together and talk about what they're going to do about climate change, except they're not going to do anything about climate change. So right. got to give a shout out to um, you know like Greta Thunberg and the you know the young people. Um, for their massive protests, uh, you know, right out front of that meeting and, um, you know, really just speaking some truth to power about uh, the fact that, you know, the folks in charge are uh, not doing anything about this issue. So maybe, Manuel, from that standpoint, it's not surprising that this isn't in the curriculum because the folks making these decisions have a vested interest to keep it that way. So, um yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. What, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that, Jeff. And, you know, individual individual actions aren't going to be enough to to save us from the impending climate doom. So, yeah, we do need sort of that that all hands on deck global approach to this. And unfortunately, we're not getting much of that because, of course, the 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 folks most responsible for the crisis are very wealthy and very powerful, and they don't want to hear any of that. This is, if there's, if there's any topic that like globally in every nation should be like a really robust part of education, it should be the climate crisis. That's that is one of the things that's uniting all of us around the planet as the planet um, begins to shift and change in ways that are affecting, as you said, everyone from Australia down here to Pasadena. So it's like we definitely need something, and I I feel like in general it's you know it's kind of like on teachers. I know there's a lot of really dope teachers doing a lot of work around climate justice, and um, our uh, very own AOTA family member Jose Wilson recently posted about the connections between climate justice and ongoing fight for justice across education and and racial justice. And and I know there's a lot of folks doing dope work to help students explore this, but it's, you know, in, in in isolation. And again, individual individual actions aren't gonna save us from this from this global catastrophe that's that's looming. So yeah, we need really robust, really robust curriculum around climate justice. And there's no subject area that's like untouched by that. You know, like myself, I'm a classroom teacher, I'm a history teacher and for the first several years of teaching world history you know the industrial Revolution is a big part of the uh, standards for world history out here in California and you know I, I never really taught it through the lens of the the impact that industrialization has had on the environment and of course now I don't teach world history now but you know that would probably be the the entryway in the the main lens through which I teach about I would teach about the industrial Revolution if I were uh, still teaching world history right now so I mean in you know mathematics science all these different areas there's so many different Different ways to to address climate change through through those areas. So yeah, we need we need that, and I'm glad UNESCO is pointing out uh, the the fact that so many places aren't teaching about it. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's listening, anyone who has the power to really make it happen in a big way. So it's left to individual teachers and in, in different regions for for that. I'm I'm thinking about those, you know, 80s style horror movies where, you know, the family moves into the haunted house or, you know, the campers are out there um and, you know, you hear those those little those little uh noises in the background that let you know like oh, there's danger there and they they hear it but they don't do anything about it. It's like, "Oh, did you did you hear that voice in the background? Like, oh, there's nothing. And they just go on about it. And as the audience member, you're watching it. And like, yeah, these folks deserve to die. Uh, all the signs were there, but they <laughs> kept camping or they kept moving into that house. Uh, yeah, that's kind of us right now with the climate crisis, man, it's like fires everywhere. I mean, I I guess I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little up there in age, but like, I'm not that old. And I remember like as a kid, I remember living in California and fires not being a thing. Like I remember maybe one fire in the summer that I'd see on the news in some remote part of California, nothing really that big. And now here I am and it's like forecasted, like it's in the weather forecast, like, okay, next week we got this and that, whatever, fire danger, there's going to be fires. And then boom, there's fires. Like it has changed so much just in my lifetime that like all the signs are around us, yet it's continue on as normal so we are those folks in those 80s style horror flicks that are like we the signs are everywhere but oh well so yeah dangerous yeah. times ahead jeff
1: yeah definitely you're making me think of that uh one of those car insurance companies has a commercial with the like the teens who are oh, like yeah scared <laughs> let's hide in the why? Why don't we just get in the moving car? And they're like, they're, or the running car. And they're like, that's crazy. Let's go. Let's go hide behind the chainsaws. I'm yeah. like, that's, this is our climate change approach. Let's go hide behind the chainsaws. Yeah, um, yeah and then man. pat ourselves on the back for you know not accomplishing anything.
2: Yeah, man. We need Captain Planet or a modern, updated, non problematic. Because again, I, you're probably right. It probably was prob- problematic if we look back at it. You know, um, I was
1: thinking, I was thinking about it a little bit though, man. Well, it might have been ahead of its time, you know, because they had like the uh, the kids with the rings. You know, I forget, what they were even really called. But they had like, I think his name was like Kwame, who was like, was it African. was definitely a
2: multicultural cast. Yeah, for sure.
1: They had the like Russian woman and the like Chinese woman. You are correct. Uh, and the like white dude from like you know brooklyn or something like that right so it was it was a mix and captain planet was blue you know so i mean
2: but he was I don't know. white
1: I, don't
2: know. I mean he, <laughs> he was blue was de- but he was white
1: he was definitely white though that's real talk man <laughs> <laughs> he was blue white yes
2: yeah
1: <laughs> english speaking uh heterosexual uh cis male white guy who just happened to be blue So
2: absolutely all of that. But we need an updated, modernized version of that for, for in like reality. I don't mean like reboot the show. I mean, like we need an actual hero to come down and take pollution down to zero and get all the nastiness out of the ozone and help us balance these things out. But yeah, that's not going to happen. So yeah. All right, folks. From Omaha to Captain Planet. That's your education news roundup for this episode. Uh, Stay tuned. Up next, we have our seminar with super dope guest, Michael Essien, to talk about uh, being a principal during these times and trying to fight for change and bring a humanizing approach to our schools. And um, you don't want to miss that. That's up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so
1: much for watching All The Above. We really appreciate you and we need your support. This is just a two person operation. It's me and Manuel and every little bit you can offer helps us keep bringing great content to you. All you have to do is go to our website. It's aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find all the ways you can help support great content here and all the above. We're on Venmo cash app and you can become a monthly supporter on our anchor page. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us today and we are just so happy to be welcoming a great, guest with us. Uh, We have none other than Michael Essien, middle school principal from up in San Francisco, who is here to talk to us about just how intense and crazy and wild (laughs) this school year has been um, for school leaders, um, and a bunch of the really big questions about school leadership in this time where we said we were going to innovate and change and everything was gonna gonna be different after the pandemic. And here we are still in the pandemic and uh, principals and administrators generally um, have a ton on their shoulders. So welcome Michael Essien to all the above. Thank you fellas, I appreciate being here. All right, well, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Michael Essien is an educational leader with approximately three decades of public education experience working in Oakland and San Francisco unified school districts. Currently, he is a middle school principal in the San Francisco Bay Area. He received his master's from UC Berkeley's Principal Leadership Institute with a focus on equity and social justice. Michael completed the National Institute of School Leadership Executive Development Program, has been a National Equity Project Fellow and a Stanford Fellow. He believes deeply in community schools, project-based learning, restorative practices, and strategic thinking. His expertise and consulting work includes organizational change, transformation or transforming, excuse me, professional learning communities and empowering students, families and teachers in public
2: education.
1: Uh, Welcome again, Michael. And I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question.
2: Yeah, we got some principal dopeness, some middle school dopeness in the building. Thank you so much, Michael, for being here. On all of the above, we know this year must have been, or must continue to be, so busy for you. So we very much appreciate you taking the time out uh, to be here to uh, to chat with us and discuss some of these, some of your experiences this year as an administrator. Now, as a school leader in San Francisco, you've you become known for your work around the the whole school approach, which is about creating humanizing spaces in our schools for our students. And we'd like to know a little bit more about that approach and what that looks like, and in particular, what's what's missing from the traditional school culture and school models that we have out there?
0: Okay, great question. So uh, lean in first, The ho- around the whole school approach. Uh, the whole school approach is a systemic thinking. So when you tend to think at some of the data that we're getting out, uh, the longitudinal data around kids inside of public education, uh, people are trying to find, like, if we use this one particular strategy or if we change this one particular thing, but the data that we know is coming from multiple experiences from our community the the things that are happening inside our community are impacting outcomes inside of our school so when people don't use a whole school approach you're not really addressing the systemic issues or the challenges that students are facing so it becomes more difficult to impact the outcome and impact the data and so what am i talking about Uh, traditionally uh, our politicians have lessen the money allocated for mental health services and social services in our communities that has an impact on what's taking place at school in terms of what's happening with children inside the community where um, maybe their parents aren't at home because they might have to work multiple jobs and then when something does occur like we know that the the school shootings across the nation and we find these stories well we knew about it when the kid was in elementary school that there were some differences And we couldn't do anything about it because we didn't have the referrals to send to um, some mental health services. We found out about it in middle school and then, boom, it explodes in high school. And then we hold these conversations. Well, why didn't schools do anything about it? Right. Well, we know that schools are wrestling with whatever is happening inside of the community. And it plays out in our school based upon the resources that we have to respond. Traditional schooling does not take this approach. It doesn't even have that systemic lens. Traditional schooling says a school is set in the community and the community you send your kids to this school so that the school can then determine whether your kid is on track to go to college. The school in a traditional setting is not really concerned about what's happening in the community. They're concerned about the academic needs. And if your child does not fit the behavior profile that allows them to succeed, like sitting in a chair, paying attention, taking notes, if the teacher tells you to go left, you go left, they tell you to go right, you go right. We are finding that that um, system across the nation is failing all kinds of students, right? So uh, we decided to do something different, right? A whole school approach where what if we look at academics and we look at behavior is not originating inside of classrooms? what if we change and flip the script the schools aren't inside of communities so the communities can send their kids to be validated or approved for going on to college what if schools became places centered in the community where they're meeting the needs of the community itself where they see the community as an asset or a strength the kids even though we have these stories around oh this kid is poor in the projects and they come with assets how do we validate those assets Well, this is what we're trying to say schools should shift to. And community schools, is not just because you name it community schools, community schools is something very specific. It's it's literally a strategy that involves aligning wraparound services to meet the needs of the students that you serve. Because at any school, if you can ask any administrator, when you have a student in your school, you don't have a student, you have a family. Because what is happening if that kid is... If there are some food issues at home, that kid's gonna arrive in your school site hungry. If there are housing insecurities, that kid is gonna be arriving at your school having known some issues that could be related to sleep deprivation, but also some social stigma. How do you address those things? Because these things impact academic outcomes. Traditionally, we didn't see those things or give weight to those things. We just turned around and said, well, the kid needs to conform. And if the kid doesn't conform, we're going to apply discipline. And then discipline showed us this data where we had disproportionality. And I think the the whole school approach says we need to pause. We need to understand what's happening inside of our communities because they're going to play out in our schools. And then how do we take a real look at addressing those issues to meet the needs of the students and the families we serve?
1: Yeah. Michael, I just I love what you said there on a uh, like a deeply spiritual level. Um, And as a former middle school principal myself, um, I think, you know, from my perspective, the point in students educational experience where what you're naming there, the type of approach to schooling that you're naming there is most critically needed is middle school, um, and I'm sure you know my elementary and high school colleagues might uh, might debate with me about that. But um, but there's it just makes so much sense what you're saying around attending to the needs of students, families, and community as the central function of school. And we heard a ton, um, you know, throughout the course of the the sort of lockdown period of the pandemic about. Uh, about doing some of the things that you're naming and we're going to you know innovate and we're going to reimagine school and we're going to do you know all of these things and we sort of um, you know come just come back in many ways to to normal and then heaped a bunch of work uh, on top of folk shoulders in particular I would argue for for principals like yourself and so I want to Call out something that you um, you put up on Twitter uh, not too long ago, which actually prompted us to uh, to reach out to you and say like, hey, let's let's bring you on, let's talk more um, about this. But um, so folks can um, can hear it, you said quote, being a principal negatively impacts your spirit. You can't balance knowing what you need to assist students and teachers with the disconnected demands of central office while being significantly underfunded by politicians. It is not possible. And there was some some uh, capital letters and exclamation points uh, in that tweet as well. Um, so I wonder if you could just maybe give us a little more context about what you what you meant there, kind of what um, you're experiencing as a principal and, um, you know, what we might learn from your experience this year and connecting that back to this beautiful vision of, you know, of community schooling and whole school approach that, that you were just naming.
0: So I want to like give you like, I'm not new to this game. So when I say I'm not new to this game, like I've been in, I've been in education in Oakland and San Francisco like for three decades. And I remember we had an incident way back when um, I wasn't even at the school. I won't name the school, but there was an incident in Oakland where four, four police officers were shot and killed by an individual who was in Oakland. And the person who, committed the the act. His sister was my student at the time. And the conversation we were holding was that young man used to go to our school site. And the people who were there when the young man had come through the school site, they were saying, oh, we knew that sometime in the future that there could be a problem with this young man. And so then I, I was like, well, if you knew this, what did you do to support the kid? Because when we talk about kids at at the middle school level, uh, we don't see, we don't project out the kids are going to be doing X, Y, and Z based upon um, some knowledge that that is hocus pocus. We see it play out in terms of maybe the kid is not completing homework. Maybe the kid is actually detached from the classroom. Uh, Maybe the kid gets into conflict often. And then the question becomes, well, then what's the school's response? Because if we look at things over time, we can project out and say that this could potentially happen. Well, more times than not, you know, because at that time school was more traditional. We just step back and we try to do suspension and we just let the kid ride. We just let it ride on. Well, those things are still occurring. Like we, we have people who still talk about we need to do discipline. We need more discipline. And I was like, when has more discipline ever changed the outcome for any child? So the why Why are we as adults no educational theory or we're supposed to know educational theory um we're supposed to know about child development why don't we apply those things inside of school so as a principal who's trying to apply these things i begin to see uh some of the mandates that come down in terms of oh well you need to uh, address the discipline in your school or you need to implement this curriculum in your school and i was like i was like i'm saying like pause hold up hold up What you're trying to get me to implement does not address any of the issues that we have at the school site. So why do I need to implement it? I want to do something different. And I'll give you an an example. Um, A few few, years, about eight years ago, I had to take my staff to a district training. And in the training, Uh, They were teaching us how to deal with kids who had significant challenges at the school site. We would use this program called Review 360, where we categorize kids as either externalizers or internalizers. So we showed up. We were ready. Like my school, because we have 500 kids, like we assessed all the kids. We had our data and we showed up and we're at the training. And I shared with the um, facilitator. I was like, well, we have 272 children out of 500 kids that have been identified as needing additional supports. How do we address that? That was the question I opened. Now we're there are multiple schools in this meeting um, from my district. And the trainer's response was, you can't. You need to identify 30 students. And when you identify those 30 students, you need to support them. So I was like, hmm. So you're telling me I need to go back to my school site. And I'm hurt, I heard him say that I need to identify 242 students that I will not serve. That's how I heard it. Who's supposed to come help, right? And then I realized that people aren't coming to help. And so then, okay, we came up with this system. And the reason many people end up finding about uh, my school site was because we made some drastic changes by becoming a community school. And maybe at some point I'll go into detail. We have a particular brand of community schooling uh, as a strategy. We went to project-based learning and I created this thing called Pushing Services which had a dramatic impact on transforming the the school. And while that was happening and we got these great results and I was even invited to be on a panel uh, to share the results to represent the school district. Well, you know what happened? My budget got cut and things were taken from me. Um, Like my community school coordinator was taken from me. I had an academic counselor. I had a math teacher to reduce math class sizes and I had my instructional coach for teachers removed. And so this was baffling to me because like we impacted the numbers, but we were not a school that was now all of a sudden we are um, a blue ribbon school in the state of California. right We just begin to impact the downward spiral for our children. It's like well, how do you justify that? Like how do, oh well somebody in central office came up with this strategy around classifying schools based upon tears. And I was like, look, like that's fine and dandy. You see the data, you know where my school is located. Those conditions have not changed. Why are you undercutting me? Well, that was happening, um, thinking about our school site, there was something unique about my school site in the district. We were the number one referring school in all of the district, the entire district. And I share with people, you can go look it up. Um, the year before I was hired, There was an article written by ABC News that approximately 150 phone calls were made to the police in the preceding year to come to the school site. Like that's the conditions that were happening at the school. Right. And I was hired to come in to try to fix all of that. And so we had come up with a strategy and then we weren't supported when that strategy um, was was working. And when I say supported, I mean, it wasn't like they were trying to not support us. But when you came up with a strategy around you know, classifying schools around tiers, when we couldn't appeal, losing four staff members at a, at a school site um, like my school was just it's unbelievable. And of course, I got angry. and I don't mind being angry when it comes to defending um, the students and the families and the teachers that I serve. Now I would just say one other thing that impacted me. Um, like I'm working with these teachers, and my teachers are amazing they know what's going on inside my school site. They go well beyond what you should expect from a teacher. Like, they do things so significant, it's like, you know, as a principal who's who's from this community or community like this, I do things and I would never ask teachers to do some of the things that they're doing for to build relationships with students and to make sure that they're taken care of. Well, what was going on downtown was, um, I was told that my teachers are racist because we had all of these high referrals. We were the number one referring school and it was black students getting referrals. So when I had that data point, I leaned in, I was like, well, there's a disconnect here because I know my teachers aren't this. Like, well, what is the issue? And we found out what the issue was, right? That we had a significant number of kids who were traumatized at 272 out of 500. And the teachers inside of our classrooms didn't have the ability to address the trauma while instructing. So push-in services, the thing that I, a strategy I created and developed, that's what was used to help teachers inside the classroom where we reallocated resources outside of the classroom to support teachers, the relationship between students and teachers while instruction was happening. And when that worked, I could revisit like, oh, so see, like my teachers aren't racist. Like the way we train them, the way we use resources, it directly impacts outcomes, not only for teachers, But also for the students and families we serve. And when I'm I'm finding the feedback coming to us is more general, like your teachers are racist, like, well, we need these supports. Well, we can't support you in that way. We can only give you this. Well, if you can only give me that, but I need this, then why are you trying to hold me accountable for stuff? Then this is where it's like, okay, so we're playing the game of accountability, but you want me to move the move mountains, but we don't have the resources. It's not just a district. Because a district is only limited by the funds they receive from the state, California. Like when I tell you, uh, when I tell you where I work, we have one billionaire for every eleven thousand seven hundred citizens in the city in which I work. We are a stone's throw from Silicon Valley, where we have multiple billionaires that are involved in all kinds of things. So why should my school or the state of California's funding for children be equivalent to the state of Arkansas? My needs are completely different. What I got families that speak multiple languages, uh, I got families that are poor living in the city that is the most expensive to live in. There are consequences for that. And when I have to rob Peter to pay Paul to figure out how to get social workers, how to keep my community school coordinator, how to get an additional coach, those things damage your spirit. Because I'm going to tell you, many of the administrators, you're not successful in getting what you need to serve those kids, but then you have to still go sit in these meetings where they want to talk to you about being accountable for moving data.
2: Man, that's fascinating. Fascinating. Several thoughts pop into my head right now, but one of them is that the uh, folks down at the district must uh, really love you because. Sounds like sounds like you don't let them get away with with the common tactics that we see within the system in terms of uh, undermining schools like yours and, and leaders like you who who have the data and have the ideas and have the the passion and the commitment, but yet they put you in impossible circumstances sometimes in terms of um, the resources being being taken away and, and all that you just explained there. Thank you very much for painting that that picture for us, and that's all ongoing, I'm sure. But then we also have. An added layer, it's about roughly a, a year or so since we started hearing whispers of this very dangerous boogeyman out there. You may have heard of this boogeyman. He goes by the name of a CRT or Critical Race Theory. And over the last year, we've seen a, a ramping up of the political extremism around this idea of critical race theory and what it means and it's captured the imagination of of white supremacists and the Republican Party and and folks all all around and we're wondering, you working in San Francisco Unified, how has this, this talking point of critical race theory, how has it materialized in your work and from your view, what is the role of critical race theory in our schools?
0: So we're fortunate to be in the state of California where the state superintendent and the governor are on the same page when it comes to some big ideas. So my state superintendent, Tony Thurman, is leading the the charge around like Black studies, ethnic studies, LGBTQIA plus studies, Jewish studies, Islamic studies. Like these are things we're trying to address notions of homophobia right xenophobia like these aren't just something that's it, they're not just things that are to the side it's at the forefront these are actually talking points of our state superintendent and the governor in the beginning of october just signed into legislation where in 2025-26 school year ethnic studies is going to be a requirement for graduation in the state of california so we're not part of that general conversation that's being uh, that's occurring across the nation around CRT is bad and we need to ban it. But that doesn't mean that we don't have people inside the state who are against it. When you start thinking about what the state superintendent and the governor signed the law, they're doing these things because they're responding to needs inside of our schools. So we are fortunate in that sense that we're not really fighting that. Um, I even had a few critical race theory courses in which I taught where educators throughout the state of California, a matter of fact, it was not just state of California, some people from Canada too and across the nation, um, where people were looking for answers and trying to figure out, well, what is this boogie monster critical race theory? And it's not really a, a, a boogie monster. It's going back to my thing where I said, we do a whole school approach, we're looking at the system. Critical race theory is a systemic lens, how you look at the system of America, how America came into existence, and why there are these discrepancies in resources, why communities are segregated, right? That's what critical race theory, takes a look at that. And it shows how the laws were used to solidify the segregation. Um, That's not a boogie monster. And I want to give a shout out to Professor Dora Dome, attorney at law. Uh, I got introduced to critical race theory when I was in graduate school. She was my professor. And this is something that you tend to encounter at graduate school. At my school site, we don't teach any critical race theory courses, but what we do at my school site is we hold real conversations. Uh, my, my teachers do assignments where, uh, I know there was assignment around DACA. Um, there were, we do project-based learning, so there's assignment around DACA where kids were actually tracing their own lineage and roots and how they got to America, um, or matter of fact, not even America, how they got to the school that, in San Francisco, right? Because some of us, I'm not from outside of America, but my family traveled through Arkansas, then to Los Angeles, right? And now I'm in the Bay Area. There's a there's a story there. We have kids explore their own existence. And this is at the core of what the problem is around critical race theory across the nation. Critical race theory is causing people to understand their current condition. And what we're seeing now is a backlash from white people who don't wanna face the fact that when you look at critical race theory, that you didn't necessarily pull yourself up by your bootstraps to get where you are, that there were some advantages. And that's not a bad thing about you on you, but you can't then say that I can't share that with other people because then people need to understand that there's nothing wrong with you in a segregated community um, where you don't necessarily have resources. There's a reason why, and let's share that reason. The response to critical race theory we've seen across the nation is they don't want people to know the reasoning. And once that's the problem, because you have people who, for lack of a better work, they're just racist. Right. And they want to justify saying that people of color, students of color are inferior, that they aren't, they aren't as intelligent as white people. We've never addressed that. Like that is a theory inside of education. And it might be connected to why we're underfunded and why schools, we don't want to integrate schools because we don't want those poor, bad kids who think different to be connected to these other kids who are pristine and wonderful and who are going to change the world. CRT exposes all of that. And that's why there's a backlash. But we're not necessarily facing that at California at the highest levels. They're saying that we can lean into a lot of this stuff. And I'm I'm grateful for that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. I'm grateful for that um, as well myself. And um, actually, just on our our most recent episode, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had on um, an amazing ethnic studies teacher here in Los Angeles, uh, Roxana Duenas, who's um, been a part of leading the work of of L.A. Unified actually being out front of the the state mandate um, and going to have ethnic studies as a graduation requirement um, in the nation's second largest school district um, as of the 23, 24 school year. So lots of great momentum, um, thankfully, here in in California on that front. Um, Switching gears a little bit, um, I want to get your perspective, Michael, on, um, you know, we are, I think, in this very sort of bizarro world space where we went through this pandemic and everyone got to see that school was heavily disrupted, right? We shut down, we went to Zoom, um, you know, we we did the virtual thing and we have sort of gradually emerged from that to like hybrid back to in-person schooling. Um, and we've been in this, uh, this space where we are both post-pandemic, I guess, if you will, but also still very much in the pandemic um, or grappling with uh, all of the ripple effects of you know illness and death and you know income loss and housing instability and all, all of those sorts of things. Um, and amidst all of this, there were tremendous calls last year um, for innovating, for reimagining what school uh, can and should be. And at least from my perspective, it feels like we've basically gone back to normal that um, at, at least from the standpoint of, what are the kind of boundaries in place from the state and district and you know and county level, what are the accountabilities that are in place, what's the leeway that folks have to to actually do um, any kind of innovation. It feels like nothing changed like we just went back to what we were doing before and then we heaped on top of that uh, you know a bunch of responsibility for principals like you to be contact tracers and uh, you know and grief counselors and that sort of thing. Um, so, as someone who has done a bunch of work around um, innovating and reimagining school uh, within these, you know, confines of of uh, the current system, I'm wondering if you can offer some reflections on what should uh, we we have done, or what might we still be able to do uh, if we were to actually live out some of those. Bold, beautiful ideas around reimagining and innovating that, that we spent a lot of time talking about um, during the, the sort of height of the lockdown period of the pandemic. Um, you know, what, what can and should that look like for schools um, uh, going forward?
0: Well, I'm going to say this uh, the pandemic gave us a glimpse into how dysfunctional schools were. Right, so there's a positive. There's always pros and cons to everything. And you got to see those opportunities, right, and then capitalize on those opportunities. We saw how we could not meet the needs of children, but more importantly, going inside the details, we saw that it, it, it was impacting students in different ways. Like some students had independent skills, and the going to the the uh, on learning the online platform was fine, but then we saw those other students who were more like dependent learners. We saw that that was more problematic. But then we found, us like, well, wait a minute, well, how are we addressing the needs of kids that have IEPs? Then how are we addressing the kids who needs to need that emotional support around uh, developing coping strategies? And this is where we began to generate these ideas. Well, we need to rethink school, right? So it wasn't, <clears throat> there were people who were thinking this way prior to the pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, now everybody knew, like you couldn't find a person Was saying that the way the hybrid learning or online learning was going, that this was ideal. We began to lean into conversations like, "How do we meet the needs of the students?" Right, and so this was a a really good thing. We spawned the opportunity if we were to look at schools and start thinking about what are we trying to do. Big picture, if we had a, a blank checkbook, we would have to redesign all of our schools. Like we would have to knock the buildings down to make them. Um, more open um, spaces with more light coming in, um, where kids, when they can learn, when they need to learn it, learning is not limited to the classroom. They can also leave the classroom. Like, say, if I happen to have a math class at a particular time, once the assignment is given to me, I don't have to stay in that classroom. I could be able to go to various spaces or locations inside the school site to do those things. But we know, say, a district like mine with over 120 schools, you can't knock down every building and rebuild it for that strategy so then uh, to support um, reimagining school space so then what do we do how can we then change the idea of reimagining schools if we can't knock down buildings and bring in all kind of light well what do we do with the curriculum is our curriculum centered around a student has to be in front of an adult an adult has to share the information in order for the kid to learn Well, we know that SAGE on the stage doesn't work. So then how do we get rid of SAGE on the stage or just across the board? Like that, the lecture model should be reserved for college. That should not be in any space anywhere in the K-12 system. Well, then how do we reimagine that? Uh, What training needs to occur for teachers in order to, to make this a reality? Vision 2025 inside of my school district is an amazing document. And it talks about how the classroom is not just the classroom, it's all of outdoors, it's the city as well. So when it comes to thinking about teaching kids, you shouldn't be limited to the classroom. I was like, this is amazing, okay? So if it's all outdoors, so where's the budget where I can take advantage of the all outdoors, right? Then we need to have some monies allocated to that. Where How are we gonna train teachers to do project-based learning and personalized learning so that we can begin to meet the needs of kids? That's not what the PDs are. PDs are not designed to do that. Well, we would need to have some thinking around that. We are not holding the conversations that are required to change the learning experience for the students we serve. And that will look different from community to community, which is why I throw community schooling in there. Community schooling has to meet the needs of the the community in which the school resides. If we begin to lean into those types of conversations, I think from those conversations, we can innovate and find schools that will benefit the community. And schools might look different from from community to community based upon the needs, but we have to hold those conversations where um, I think it's the the Stanford School of Design with their design thinking. Um, But I also know uh, when I went through the NISTL program, when we started looking at Uh, Ford Motor Company and how they um, re-innovated themselves. They recreated some things and then came up with a model to save themselves. We need to go from customer to concept. Customer to concept. The way we do school now, we're not even thinking about our students. We are holding general conversations. Oh, a marginalized student. Well, marginalized student, well, who are you talking about? Oh, you took. Marginalized student is just a general term, which means there's a student that we didn't educate, and at some point we assess them, and then we now call them marginalized. The same system that didn't educate them, marginalized them, and then gave them a label, but then who are we talking about? We're talking about kids that can't read, so then what are the reading programs, right? If kids can't do math, so then how are we addressing that? If we're going to reimagine school, we need to shift from what I consider intellectual conversations, where we're talking about marginalized students in this theory, vacuum world, as opposed to when we say marginalized students, let's name them. So at my school site, if I'm gonna design something, if I'm gonna innovate for my students, I'm gonna take a student that I consider the most marginalized. A student who might have an IEP, the student who might have housing insecurity, a student does not have food. What do I need to change inside the school so that that student is meeting we're meeting the needs of that student because that student is our customer. And if I can meet that student needs, I know the needs of all the other students can be addressed because when you design schools to meet the needs, when you start thinking about the customer, the student as a learner, the student as a family, then you can begin to say, I think this is what schools should look like. But we have to gain, we have to lean in and, and get into these conversations so we can gain insight. And from those insights, we need to have those parents at the table. We need to have people from the central office at the table. We need to have our teachers and students at the table so we can innovate to design a school to meet those needs. Because if not, you'll just have my opinion around what schools should be. And my opinion is not what the community needs. It's the community that needs to tell us what we need to design to meet their students and family needs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so appreciate those words. And, um, you know, you, you started your response talking about, uh, you know, a, a district like yours that has hundreds of, you know, of big, expensive buildings to, uh, you know, that you can't just knock down uh, and replace or certainly can't do that, you know, at the drop of a hat. Um and there are there are plenty of uh, structures within education that are not physical, right? That are matters of policy or matters of uh, just culture and habit um, that that we take on as educators that that may be um, equally difficult to break down, um, but could be actually done so and remade without the you know without having to get billions and billions of dollars uh, to <laughs> to replace buildings. So. Um, Michael Essien, we are deeply appreciative uh, of your time today. Really appreciate you coming um, here to all the above to share your your voice and perspective and and wisdom on um, all these big important issues that um, certainly sit in the laps of school leaders across the country um, and that have just just wide ranging impact on educators generally and of course the, the kids and families that we serve. So thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thank you, I appreciate the opportunity to share my experiences.
1: All right, well folks, that's it for today's seminar. Stay tuned, next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, we have come to that wonderful time in each episode where we pause for a moment and give some props to people doing great things in the world of education. And today, Manuel, our class dismissed, is gonna highlight not only um, people, but an entire district uh, here in the Los Angeles area, which is the Alhambra Unified School District, just east of Los Angeles, um, that uh, some folks may have seen online, uh, caught a little bit of buzz, at least out here in California because They made a decision at the end of October on uh, Friday, October 29th, to do what everybody knows we need to do, Manuel, but but everybody's afraid to do, which is give people time to just rest and not work and have some time back because everybody's tired and burnt and frustrated. It's been a ridiculous two years of life as an educator. Um, and, uh, Alhambra gave that time, uh, to their teachers. So, uh, Manuel, tell us a little bit more about this wonderful story.
2: Yeah. So first of all, I just want to point out that uh, Jeff, we had to, we did some fact checking because this was one of those things where we saw, we saw it floating around the internet, we saw it floating around social media. This, this like <clears throat> the same image of this letter sent by the superintendent of Alhambra Unified to to their staff, and part of me was like, is this real? Because you know, you see a lot of photoshopped stuff and a lot of things that be, go viral before they, you know, anyone actually looks into whether or not that actually happened. So. Yeah, we here at all of the above um, double-checked and triple-checked, and and we can verify that the uh, the image you might have seen floating around social media of that letter to uh, the staff, uh, teachers of Alhambra Unified, is in fact real. And yes, so they had a, a pupil-free day for professional development. They had to schedule for October 29th, and for those who might not be familiar, that's where all the students um, don't come to school, and the staff- do come to school and have a full day of professional development. And myself as a teacher who is not in Alhambra Unified, we've had two of those days so far. I think two, has it been two? Yeah, two of those days so far where like, yeah, the students stayed home, but we teachers were on campus for a virtual PD, I should add. Um, But we had to be on campus contractually, so I had to commute all the way to school to hop online and watch this PD and be part of this PD. Um, yeah, that's happened twice and it's it's a drag. So definitely, definitely, I wanna shout out, I have unified for giving their teachers the day to themselves so that they could actually take care of themselves in whatever way uh, was best for them because I know as a classroom teacher, man, I could really use that. Even if the professional development is good quality stuff, even if it's good quality stuff, a whole day of that, when you're already just trying to make it, like this school year has been so incredibly difficult. Uh, it's definitely for myself been so incredibly challenging. Yeah, just a, a day to actually like recoup versus like having to be online and go through PD, even if it's good PD. Yeah, man, I, I wish, I wish. And and in the letter to, to uh, teachers, the superintendent, uh, Superintendent Denise uh, Jaramillo, she wrote that my one request, please make the day about you. Create a vision of a dream day. Don't do chores or work. Instead, take a walk, sleep in, plant a few seeds. Just do what you gotta do. Man, I appreciate that. Because you know how teachers be, Jeff. Like, oh, I have I have this day. Okay, cool. I could catch up on my grades that day. Or I could catch up on this. Or I could plan these lessons. And She was like, nah, nah, nah. Don't do that. Take the day really for yourself. So shout out to Alhambra Unified. Shout out to the superintendent there and the board and anybody else involved in this. That's yeah. Hint hint to all the other districts out there, whoever might whoever may be listening. Hint hint. If you already have a pupil free day scheduled, consider allowing it to also be a um, teacher free day. So yeah.
1: Yep. Yep. And I yes I I co signed everything you said there, Manuel. And we'll just add like. Not only is this a great idea and would it have been a great idea in any year, it is especially a great idea (laughs) right now at a time when we have an educator shortage, when we're worried about vacancies we can't fill, when people are burning out and we're approaching cold and flu season. Like, come on now, district leaders. Come on now, state leaders. Let's go. We need to take care of educators. So make it happen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All the Above. We hope you appreciated what you listened to or watched. If you're watching us on YouTube, please go ahead and hit that thumbs up and all that good stuff. And if you've listened this far into the episode, yet you're still not subscribed or um, you know following the, the podcast feed, uh, go ahead and click whatever you have to click to make that happen so that you don't miss our upcoming episodes with more and more dope guests. We really love y'all. We really hope everyone's doing the best they can right now out there in schools and around schools and all that good stuff. And uh, we will catch you next time. Peace out.